Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Union Square has long been the retail heart of the entire Bay Area. It was zoned with 5 million square feet of retail space. That rivals the Mall of America. But at the biggest, most structural levels, brick and mortar retailing has been in trouble for most of a decade. Add the pandemic, add the viral videos of shoplifting, subtract a lot of visitors to central cities, and the outcome is ugly. One SF Standard analysis found that more than half of Union Square's retailers have left since the pandemic began. So what happens to Union Square now? What are the factors behind the headlines that are driving its evolution? We'll talk about it all after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Today's show is not a doom loop show saying the same old things about San Francisco's reputational and or real problems. Instead, we're going to look at how Union Square can evolve and transform in our current moment as it has so many times through the decades. We're going to look both beyond San Francisco at the issues plaguing retailers across the country, and we're going to drill down on the specific Union Square real estate issues that are shaping its evolution. To help us think about the broader retail issues, we're joined first by the Atlantic's Amanda Mull, staff writer who pens the magazine's Material World column on consumerism in America. Welcome, Amanda. It's so good to talk with you. Thank you so much, Alexis. It's so good to talk to you, too. Yeah. Um, So in the old days, stores were obviously where the stuff was that you could buy. And there were catalogs and things, but you really, you know, most shopping was going on in stores. What's been the effect of online shopping? Do you think people are overestimating or underestimating the effect of online shopping? I think the answer to that is a little bit of both. Um, When you look at the numbers for online shopping, um, it it is a pretty much a minority of sales that are still to this day going um, to online sales channels, um, 10 to 15%, depending on where you look. Uh, And there, as far as I know, are no estimates for that to um, exceed 50% mm-hmm. um, at any time in the future. Yeah. Um, 
you know, online shopping, I think, will always be sort of like a, a minority stake in like overall consumer expenditures. But where it really does matter is um, where it sort of plays at the margins mm. of of how much a store or a particular type of store is able to uh, bring consumers in um, to their uh, brick and mortar locations. So if if you are, for example, a clothing store um, and you have the entire apparatus of uh, fast fashion online up against you, um, that will probably play with your margins a little bit more than um, a grocery store where people are going to drop in more frequently. Yeah. Um, and then you also get have situation where um, it also plays on how executives of these companies think about where they should invest. Hmm. Since online is growing, you get a lot of executives who are, um, in some ways, I think a little bit short-sighted about this, putting a lot of um, emphasis and a lot of budget towards online shopping and developing those sales channels at the expense of their in-person stores, even if their in-person stores are still where the bulk of their sales are happening. Hmm. So, what about nationally how foot traffic is looking for, for stores? I mean, it's obviously been down a lot in San Francisco. There's been different measurements. But is this, this is true pretty much across the country, right? Yeah, and it sort of depends where you're looking at in, as far as in a city. Um, mm -hmm. Central business districts that are areas where a lot of people um, who worked in person uh, went into work before the pandemic have seen, like, I, I think uh, pretty much no matter the city, the sharpest decline mm -hmm. uh, because you've just got fewer knowledge workers, fewer office workers going into those places. So you don't get the sort of um, incidental purchases that you get when you have just a lot of foot traffic. Um, and that sort of has like a like a you know, it, that accumulates momentum over time. If those places feel empty, if those places um, uh, feel like people aren't going there anymore, if uh, retailers start to move uh, inventory and labor dollars toward other stores and more residential areas, for example, then you can get sort of a ghost town feeling and that uh, discourages even further uh, foot traffic and sales. So you, you get this sort of like shifting sales pattern. I think you see that in a lot of uh, cities. You know, it's interesting because we've had these massive shifts in retail over time where we had, you know, central business districts used to be like every single one of them had all these stores for a lot of different reasons. And then you had kind of the rise of the suburban mall. So what's been happening in those outlying mall regions across the country? Right. Historically, uh, shopping availability is going to follow population shifts. Um What's interesting now is we see both issues in central business districts like Union Union Square and in suburban malls. Um, traditional malls have uh, have a number of of issues uh, plaguing them. One is that a lot of them were just built a long time ago, and mm -hmm. they can feel sort of structurally outdated and uh, faded, and maybe a little bit dim, and maybe not the cleanest and brightest. It's like being on an old um, airplane. <laughs> yes, yes. It's very much similar to being on an old airplane. And, um, you know, the nostalgia factor alone cannot cannot always inspire people to go and experience that, especially at the rate that they were in, you know, the 90s. Mm -hmm. um, so you've got that. You've also got retailers um, that have uh, very long leases in those 
in those locations where uh, the desire to shop at those retailers might have faded, um, you know, back when the mall's uh, architecture did, uh, but they're still plugging along and they're still filling those spots. And you've also got just structurally, those malls are built for large anchor department stores. And as a nation, we don't have as many of those. So you've got some of the largest, uh, highest foot traffic tenants have vacated and in some cases vacated a long time ago. You've got those open spots that there's no real ideal business to to occupy those those spaces in mass and that means that you've got like a, a foot traffic issue for the smaller stores that might not be able by themselves to attract as much business um to, for somebody to drive out to the mall um and then you've got you know competition online competition mm-hmm. from outdoor newer shopping areas you've so malls are are suffering as well mm-hmm. and were before the pandemic Are there places like individual stores or individual, you know, uh, cities or central business districts that have succeeded in creating a model of retail that seems like it's working better? I think so. I I think when you look at um, higher end shopping centers, shopping plazas, shopping malls, shopping districts, um, people with a lot of disposable income want to go and look at pretty things and have lunch out and, um, you know, sort of uh, experience leisure. Um, and I, I think that when you, those spaces that have been created to to cater to that subset of the population um, are genuinely, are generally doing pretty well. Those are also high margin industries um, and high margin portion of retail. So you get a lot of, uh, capital that's available to update facilities and update fixtures and um, hire labor to make sure that everything looks beautiful. So those are still inviting spaces. Um, And a lot of those have moved to um, outdoor shopping areas, especially in parts of the country where the weather is nice most of the year. So uh, you get to have a little time outside, you get to enjoy the weather, you shop, you um, sort of miss the the old architecture and and dim lighting of some of the places that uh, people don't like so much anymore. Um, I think in Sunbelt cities, uh, a lot of them have had uh, more more luck with uh, mm-hmm. drawing people into central business districts because they've had an influx in population um, and people looking for community. So you get people out into the streets and and a lot of them have had have made very purposeful pushes to encourage that type of activity too. So one thing I've noticed, I think it's maybe not, maybe even preceded the pandemic, but it became very noticeable during and after. There's just like fewer workers out on a lot of retail floors Like you'll go in and you'll just be like, hello, is there anyone in, you know, Um, are there, what can you say from your research about how the staffing models maybe have changed for some of these places? Yes, the the lack of of workers in retail stores, I think, is a huge problem. No matter the city you're in, no matter the part of the city, um, stores have sort of this long-term existential issue going on where a lot of the biggest retailers are going to be publicly traded, um, which means that they have to report um, results to uh, investors. One of the, and that happens every three months. One of the best ways to goose profits to make investors happy is to find ways to cut expenses. And for someone who's, for an executive who's living, you know, quarter to quarter on those results, uh, it is often pretty um, tempting to cut labor. Um, because that is a, a huge line item in the budget for any retail store. And it is one that you can cut uh, because of American labor laws without too much problem. So we have had a cycle over the past couple of decades of these big retailers, especially just cutting and cutting and cutting from labor budgets. And that 
has resulted ultimately in in stores that are just absolutely shoestring staffed. Um, and when you talk to retail workers about like the problems that um, that face retail that they face in their stores, the first thing almost all of them say is that we don't have enough hours to like make the store run efficiently and make it mm. um, a place that is nice for customers and that looks nice and that is orderly and that is safe in some cases. So you you get this sort of dwindling um, labor budget over time. And then, especially in a tight labor market, you uh, if your labor budget is is uh, ha- has been whittled away over decades, you sort of lack the capacity to attract um, workers who have better options and better paying options. So I think we're in a place right now where uh, where retail has sort of uh, painted itself into a corner that it is not, that executives at least are not particularly eager to get out of. We're talking about the future of retail in Union Square in San Francisco and across the country with Amanda Mull, staff writer at The Atlantic. We'd love to hear from you. I mean, how often and where do you shop in Union Square? What do you like about going there? Or if you've owned a business or you are a business owner right now in Union Square, what's your experience been like over the last few years? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can email forum at kqed.org. You can find us Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram or KQED Forum. Amanda, you know, it feels like from what you're describing, this is kind of in the category of things that were kind of breaking before the pandemic, then broke during the pandemic. And now we're in this process of like looking back and realizing like, oh, we kind of need to like reset the bone. So do you have any ideas for what may happen over the next, you know, few years as, as retailers kind of respond to this new conditions? I think that's absolutely the case. Um, retail has uh, brick and mortar retail has has been in sort of uh, dire straits in some in, in some ways uh, for quite a long time. And you know, taking people out of um, central business districts, taking them out of their normal uh, you know errand routines, um, definitely exacerbated some of those problems and, and broke the backs of certain retailers and certain processes and uh, far more quickly than it would have happened mm-hmm. otherwise. Um, and I think that there is like a real opportunity for retailers to say, okay, what we have been doing has, has not been working for a really long time. We are, uh, you know, putting a bunch of money into, um, into online sales and those are, they're growing, but they're growing very, very slowly. We have onboarded a lot of people to online shopping in all the ways that we are going to do it for like the time being at least. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now if if we're having these conversations about, you know, retailers can't keep stores open, retailers can't um, afford leases, things like that, I think that you've got the issue is twofold. Uh, people need to CEOs of these companies need to reinvest in their workforces and uh, regulatory bodies in states and cities need to encourage um, more people moving in. We're talking about the future of retail in Union Square in San Francisco and across the country. Been joined in this first segment by Amanda Moll. Thank you so much for joining us, staff writer with The Atlantic. We'll be back with more on Union Square right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. 
We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the future of retail in Union Square in San Francisco. Earlier, we were joined by Amanda Mull, staff writer with The Atlantic. I want to introduce two new guests here in the studio with me. J.K. Deneen is Bay Area housing reporter and all things real estate, really, uh, with the San Francisco Chronicle. Welcome to the show, J.K. Thanks for having me, Alexis. We are also joined by Marissa Rodriguez, CEO of the Union Square Alliance, a business improvement district that provides security, you know, maintenance, marketing, capital improvements in Union Square. Thanks for joining us, Marissa. Thank you for having me. So, you know, we were listening earlier uh, about sort of where retail is across the country. But maybe we can talk a little bit, uh, Marissa, first about how Union Square came to be this retail district with as much retail almost as the Mall of America. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think a lot of people are surprised to learn that um, Union Square is the second largest retail footprint in America, second to the Mall of America. We're about eight miles of uh, retail storefront, if you were to pull it out Hmm. from here to McLaren Park, actually from Union Square to McLaren Park. Um, That's a lot. That is a lot. And, you know, it was really, you know, a consumerism push when you want to go to the 50s and kind of make your way to really the 80s, where we really, I think, peaked around consumerism and this feeling that the large flagship was a sign that, you know, your store was the its store and uh, you really wanted a presence. And so we really built up this country around that idea. Hmm. And Union Square was no different, I think, than any other major city in America. Wow. And I mean, is there something that's good for a city about having those stores there? I think so. I think it's a sign that you you certainly believe in that city and um, maybe the prosperity of that city. It's kind of a feeling that, you know, um, this is this is a place where people want to be, where they want to recreate, where they want to perhaps call home. I mean, all the Mm -hmm. things that make for a beautiful city and one like San Francisco. Hmm. It's also interesting if you just, you know, we have another city right across the Bay, Oakland. We can contrast what happened there. I mean, all the big department stores went out. All the stores basically went out uh, of downtown Oakland, which had its own separate business district. But that didn't happen here, right? I mean, instead, kind of opposite happened. It sort of sucked in more and more retail from across the region. Yeah, no, we we, we certainly saw that. Um, You know, I think there's certainly a clientele base here in San Francisco that supports that industry continues to. Um, I know we're hearing a lot of challenges on the news and other things, but in fact, we do still feel a very strong retail presence in Union Square and actually the rest of the city. Hmm. You know, JK, um, you know, one of these real estate brokerage firms, uh, I think their name is Avisan Young, reports 23% of the retail space is available in Union Square. So does that mean that basically three quarters of the buildings are full or what's that actually? Yeah, it's probably even higher than that. Um, But I think what happened was um, after the Great Recession, um, many um, uh, institutional investors, big Wall Street money came in and bought buildings that had always been owned by families, local Bay Area families, and they paid 
$1,000 a square foot or more, you know, just tons and tons of money for these buildings. And then they had to raise the rents. And, and, and so what you saw was a lot of local businesses like, I mean, even very high-end ones and, and, and legacy businesses like Brytex and Shreve & Co. and Arthur Barron's Shoes getting kind of priced out. Um, two of three of those actually ended up getting new spots in Union Square, which, which was great. And um, one of the most, one of the only sort of fun days during the first year of the pandemic was when I came down and they lifted the new sign onto the mm-hmm. new Brytex building. It was, you know, weighed 1,200 pounds. And I think they have their own red. It's like one shade off of Lil Bouton red or something. <laughs> uh, I don't even know what that is. Um, but um, so you had these really high rents and, and the only people, the only companies that could afford them were, you know, Gucci and, and, and um, Cartier and companies like that. And so now I think you've got, there's, there's sort of a, a resetting of values going on. And a lot of those buildings, the debt will be due next year. 2014, I think there's $7 trillion worth of commercial real estate debt coming due. Many of those buildings across the country, including in Union Square, will end up owned by the lender. Mm-hmm. And you know they'll probably they might be part of a portfolio with a building in Soho, a building in Chicago, mm-hmm. a couple of buildings in San Francisco, and somebody will come in and, and and buy those buildings at a much lower price than they sold for in 2014, 2015, yeah. and so that hopefully will give an opportunity for maybe even some local retailers to come in and kind of inject some new new energy uh, into the square because. It, Help me think about how a thousand dollars a square foot, like you purchase a building for that much. How does that like filter down into like how much you need to sell on kind of like an everyday basis? I that's a tough one. I mean, I do think like there's there's covenants a lot of times in these leases where you know the in order. I mean, in the 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 owners of the buildings don't actually own it. It's other people's money often, and so there's covenants where they can't charge below a certain rent without uh, going back to their lenders and and risking you know losing the asset altogether. But I mean, I imagine I don't know. I've never shopped at Cartier, but I imagine they have to, <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, I mean, you make a really good point. I mean, I think ultimately you'd have to sell a lot of black pairs of pants for work in order yeah. to make the rent versus maybe one designer handbag, right? Yeah. Um, and so that's maybe what we're starting to see right now, why our luxury market is doing so yeah. well. Let's um, let's bring in a caller here. Let's go to uh, Maria in San Francisco. Welcome. Hi. Thank you for receiving my call. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, sure can. Go ahead. Very good. So I'm actually in transit right now on the way to my retail job, uh, which is in uh, the Fillmore District. Um, so I have been in the retail industry management for many years. Uh, over 35 years, I've been working downtown since, uh, you know, the early days in, in the 80s in at Macy's and Neiman's and Saks and mm-hmm. the Boutique area on Grant Street. So, you know, even the Westfield Mall. So I've seen a lot of transitions um, in um, shopping trends, yeah. if you will. And so recently I've left the downtown area very, very disappointed in uh, the lack of foot traffic. Also, having to, for, uh, excuse me for not being PC here, babysitting transients, shoplifters, um, and uh, homeless folks, drug addicts, uh, just to be able to uh, save my inventory on display. Okay? Mm-hmm. 
just disparaged, completely upset with all that. And I just said, forget it. I'm leaving the downtown area. This is no longer what it used to be. Mm. Um, I'm not hitting my goals. And uh, my team is actually very scared. We've been um, um, held up at gunpoint, and it's just not yeah. a, a friendly environment for the shoppers, no, for the, for the folks working in retail. So I left, you know, and I'm in a different area, different neighborhood, different environment, and very happy that I did so. Yeah. Hey, Maria, thank you for uh, sharing your experience. I'm sorry that happened to you and your, your team there, too. I mean, Marissa Rodriguez, I mean, this you may you must hear this stuff. Absolutely. And I'm really heart- sad to hear that as well. You know, um, I've been in this role for about a little over a year and a half. It'll be two years in October. Um, actually, I was three weeks on the job when the mass looting happened, of course, not just in San Francisco, but ac- across the country. Um, and, you know, I really do believe I was brought onto this role a lot to do with the fact that I'm actually a former prosecutor. Um, and so my my background and trajectory is certainly quite unique um, as far as someone coming into the retail space and hospitality space. And I think, you know, certainly the issue of crime and safety was number one on the list. I mean, when we're talking, even with the conversation earlier with Amanda, um, hearing the need for economic development, certainly right there, second, mm-hmm. the vacancies, et cetera, how are we going to fill these spaces, mm-hmm. but crime and safety, number one. And so with, you know, immediacy, never wanting to lose a good opportunity, we secured the district with a police command van. We're the only one in, it's the only one in San Francisco, um, but the presence has been really extraordinary and super helpful mm. to give some reprieve to a lot of our, our, our shopkeepers. It's a very different environment today, but we are still as a city dealing with a lot of those challenges. Is that the only set of solutions, just the police, or do you see other things that could contribute to making things better? Absolutely. I mean, we're seeing um, a lot of support from our ambassadors. Uh, we have just, you know, eyes eyes and ears on the streets. But I have to be honest, we have to, we have to secure the district. I mean, there are, and the city. I mean, crime is an issue. It's a real issue. Um, and we have to certainly face that head on. And unfortunately, that does require um, more policing. I, um, JK, when we talk about these vacancy rates, it feels like some of them are in places that I, I don't expect, like right by the Powell Street turnaround. I mean, you talk about like lack of foot traffic, but there's lots of people. That's where the people are. And yet there's a bunch of empty buildings there that used to be feels like the Gap was there. And I don't know, there's a Forever 21 on the other side at some point. Um, what about those spots, which feel like they still kind of fit the definition of like prime retail? Yeah, I do think um, that stretch of Powell Street was originally a lot of mass market, um, uh, more not the super high-end luxury companies, and and they left, and they're more dependent on workers and foot traffic than the luxury, you know, um, Gucci's that maybe cater more to an international traveler and that kind of thing. The city is putting $6 million into redoing that, particular stretch of Powell Street. Um, they're going to you know, redo all the, the, the sidewalks and that metallic kind the of... Parklet, the parklet. The parklet, right. which yes. didn't really uh, ever uh, take off. And then there, I think there's like $2 million worth of grants, is that right, that will help um, 
help companies move in and maybe help with their tenant improvements. I mean, that's been a problem too. Even if rents go down, construction costs haven't. Mm. So it's very expensive to um, to build out a, a retail space in San Francisco. So even if a company might might want to, and they're big spaces. They are large, yeah. And you know, it takes about, what, five minutes to have a conversation to say, you know, we're done and we're, we're closing shop. It takes about eight to 12 months to negotiate a lease. And then about 18 months on a good day to go through, navigate the city permit process. And so Mm. we're really looking at that as well. Um, The city has certainly leaned in on conversations around this and trying to figure out a way to speed that up because, you know, it's very difficult to chase that. Yeah. I mean, I'm curious about those permitting issues because, I mean, isn't this like you're a fear retail company? Going into Union Square, aren't you? You're doing what the city wants you to do, right? I mean, this is so. What is what, from your perspective as someone who represents a lot of these businesses? What what is taking so long on the permitting side of it? What takes so long is just ultimately just the bureaucracy. I mean, it's just you know you, you submit you submit your application. It's going to sit for a while. You know, it's just just process. You know, it's just delayed by process. Um, and you know if you asked to expedite something. Well, you can't expedite everything. Um, And so we just have to continue to push that retail is important, that a dynamic, interesting, activated downtown is what we need to attract people back. Um, Missing those workers, about 200,000 people daily, Mm -hmm. it's real. And so what can we get in their place? And that is attracting our San Franciscans back downtown or Bay Area residents back downtown. Um, and how do we do that, especially if the feeling or sentiment or reputation is one that it's not safe? Yeah. Is it San Francisco residents, though? Or, I mean, aren't there like 12,000 hotel rooms, too, in Union Square, right? So I, I have been seeing just trying to buy flights at any time. You're like, man, people are moving around the country again. Are we expecting a big summer of tourism here? We are. And, I, and I'm glad you actually mentioned that. So 12,000 hotel rooms in Union Square really are lifeblood right now is tourism. Um, and to JK's point, they are shopping and they are shopping in the high-end stores. Um, but it is nice to have that only SF experience, only an SF. You know, when you travel and you want to pick something up, it's not something you can pick up at home anyway. Mm. You want that unique, that bride text, as you pointed out, that gumps, that just that little store that is local. Um, mm-hmm. And so I do think this is a reset moment. I think we're at this place where it happened very quickly. So that's kind of shocking. We are dealing with challenges other than, you know, whether or not we're buying things online or our habits are changing. We are dealing with some real issues on the ground. Um, But all that said, I think we're really poised to attract what consumers want today, and that is experiences. They want to go shopping, but they also want to catch a show. They want to go shopping, but they want to have a coffee while they're doing it, you know. Um, And today we can. We have the space and opportunity in in a location that traditionally was so difficult to enter, right? That now you, you you're starting to see stores even leave their current location to get closer to the plaza, for example. Mm. Um, it's a really interesting time. I, I do think we are challenged by some of the negative uh, reporting that we're hearing across the, across the country and and locally. Um, but I am seeing a lot of interest in the district and yeah. new stores opening up. Let's uh, go to Paul in San Francisco. Welcome, Paul. Yes, uh, I grew up in San Francisco when I was a little boy. My mother told us we have to put our good clothes on because we're going down to Union Square. (laughs) And it was a magical experience for the window shopping and everything else. Now in San Francisco, we have an anti-business attitude oftentimes amongst some politicians. 
And you need a better example than the MTA raising the parking rate hours to 10 o'clock at night. I mean, that's anti-business attitude. Uh, we need to be. We need to have police in Union Square, and it has to be pristine. And I really think your guests really have the, the, the woman, the head of the district down there. It's got great ideas, but she's got to be listened to at City Hall. And we, I don't think we have the impetus from City Hall to really solve the problem right now. I hope we do, but I'm not sure. Hey, thanks for your uh, experience, Paul. I'll uh, think of you putting on your Sunday best to go shopping. Um, you know, an, another listener writes in to say, you know, in 1999, I used to work at Macy's in Union Square. Back then I lived in Oakland. It was affordable. I took part to work and felt safe. The Bay Area is no longer affordable, forcing people to relocate or onto the streets. When the majority of people are struggling for something as basic as housing, the retail world will feel it. Too many of us are being financially crushed by income inequality. I mean, J.K., this is one of those big forces that is both at play, you know, across the world, across the United States, but has its, you know, most intense manifestation here in the Bay Area. Right. Certain, certainly downtown where real estate appreciated more than, you know, almost any other neighborhood in, in the country, um, you know, during the run up to the pandemic. Uh, yeah, it's just not I mean, San Francisco does a pretty good job of building subsidized affordable housing. Um, but uh, there's only so much of it, you know, a million dollars a unit. There's only so much of it that, that can be built, that has been built. And so, right, more and more people that probably used to work at Macy's and, and, and other stores downtown are now in Antioch or Vallejo or uh, Lathrop or Tracy. And, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, it's just they're, they're not coming to the city anymore. Yeah. And that's sad. You know, and I, I do think, like, I mean, there's still, we still have, John's Grill and Cafe Central and these great San, only San, you know San Francisco institutions uh, where people can come and have lunch and have a special experience. Um, but you know, at a certain point, like how how far are you going to go for that, right? If you're forced to live an hour, hour and a half away. I travel many many miles to go to John's Grill for sure. <laughs> but I think you make a really good point. Um, you know, one thing that gets forgotten, and I really try to put out there as much as possible, is Union Square is where San Franciscans, Bay Area residents, come to work. We, as you mentioned earlier, have 12,000 hotel rooms, right? We are re- uh, the retail hub. Um, we have service jobs and entry-level jobs and newcomer jobs, you know, a lot of jobs. And safety and getting here is really important, which is why we do work really closely with um, our city officials to really address clean and safe. Right. Number one, you can't pass go without it. And you want to make sure everyone feels like they are safe where they are working. Maria mentioned that with her employees. That's terrifying. You don't you never want that. Mm-hmm. And certainly um, driving in or taking public transportation, you want to make sure it's safe. I know that BART has uh, made some real major investments recently to address mm-hmm. that as well. I take BART in here all the time and I think it's actually great service and i'm really worried about it long term i mean it i don't i think people really underestimate the importance of bart anyway we're talking about the future of retail in union square in san francisco and across the country we're joined by marissa rodriguez ceo of union square alliance it's a business improvement district there and jk denine bay area real estate reporter with the san francisco chronicle we want to hear from you. Have your shopping patterns changed in the past few years? Maybe you've gone back to physical retail. The number is 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org and Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum. Stay tuned for more. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. We're talking about the future of retail in Union Square in San Francisco, of course, as well as, you know, across the country in these broader trends. We're joined by J.K. Deneen, Bay Area real estate reporter with the San Francisco Chronicle, and Marissa Rodriguez, CEO of the Union Square Alliance. Earlier, we were joined by Amanda Mole, staff writer with The Atlantic. We would love to hear from you. I mean, have your shopping patterns changed in the past few years? What makes you want to shop in person versus online. And maybe, you know, what would bring you back to Union Square? Love to hear from you. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We are KQED Forum. Let's bring in another caller. Goldie in San Francisco. Welcome. Hey, Goldie. Got to turn down your radio a little bit. Can you hear us? All right, Goldie. Maybe we'll come back to you. Um, JK, let's talk about the zoning of Union Square. Because we were talking about, you know, it was zoned in these really particular ways to support this kind of retail world that existed, you know, pre-2017, let's say. Right. There's like 620 different buildings that are in Union, Greater Union Square. That's right. And um, like, I think it's around 5 million square feet zone for retail. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and that's uh, and many of those buildings are multi-level. And I think that even before the pandemic, it, we found that um, on the one hand, we didn't want to fill all these buildings with tech office. On the other hand, retailers weren't interested in being on the second floor or the third floor, and shoppers weren't going up to the second or third floor. So you have you had a little bit of a dilemma, like how, how do you keep Union Square a shopping district at the same time as you know activating these buildings? And that's gotten even more challenging since COVID. So I think that right now what um, Supervisor Aaron Peskin, who represents the district as well as Mayor Breed and the and the Union Square Alliance are working on just relaxing zoning throughout the the square so that um, you know maybe we can get some more uh, residential conversions. It's been difficult so far, very expensive. You've had a show mm-hmm. on this. It's is you know you need you need night you need you need the right shape building. You need the right, you need the right you need floor plates. Floor plates, yeah. and then still it's very expensive. I talked to a, a contractor who had done estimates for forty conversions. He said none of them worked um, oh, at man. the moment. But I mean, right, there's a lot right. of there's a lot of talk about. Um, you know, p- postponing, reducing fees, about about lowering affordability requirements, all kinds of things that could make it a little bit easier and more affordable to convert some of these buildings and bring 
more um, residents uh, to Union Square and the greater downtown. And I would add, you know, uh, Union Square actually has not been studied for this directly that specific as far as conversions. Um, I think we actually might have more luck in that space. We are mm -hmm. expecting um, luxury units to be built above uh, Louis Vuitton right now, the old I. Magnon building, mm -hmm. if you can recall right there on the corner mm -hmm. of Gary and Stockton. Um, retail is not dead. I'm going to put that out there. I think maybe eight miles of retail is not needed, <laughs> but let's say maybe six <laughs> somewhere yeah, yeah. hovering around that, maybe five, mm -hmm. and something else, a different use, right? And so the impetus of pushing uh, for our city leaders to consider zoning changes was that that idea, you know, really realizing post-pandemic we're in a new era. Hmm. This is a new time. Mm -hmm. What do people want to see? Maybe a museum, maybe, a you know, an educational institution downtown in Union Square, maybe, you know, another hotel, residential. If we're going to survive the next major disruptor as a community, that's not a traditional neighborhood, right? That cannot pivot and, and, and eat at its parklets and go to its hardware store because we don't have that infrastructure. Mm -hmm. um, how will we? And it's through kind of diversifying the neighborhood. Do you all have an estimate for what you think the retail demand is like on a square footage basis? Like, is it, like you said, I mean, is it four million? Is it three and a half? Like, you know, you know, I want to say somewhere between four and six. Um, I really do think if we tackle our safety challenges, and I'm going to leave it mostly at safety challenges, I really think there is no better place to recreate. I really appreciate Paul's comments. You know, being from San Francisco myself, I have great this great image of what Union Square meant to me growing up. It's a place where we all go to celebrate life, whether it's the holidays, whether it's a graduation, whether it's a wedding. Um, people come to visit. It's the gateway with the cable car ringing up and down Powell. It's a special place that you're not going to find, as Am Amanda was saying, you know, in in a, a mall somewhere in, in suburban America. Mm -hmm. um, there's a grit. But there, there's a feeling there that is really, truly special. And I think if you get those things right, you add some neighbors, you add, like I said, a museum and something more and some experiential and more music and more activity, you bring, you bring folks back downtown. I mean, are there models for bringing people back to a shopping district? You know, like there are other cities. I mean, obviously, Union Square is special, like in, in it's special nationally, not just within the Bay Area. But are there models that you could say, OK, New York did it like this or, you know, I don't know if L.A., you know, Marissa, are you? You know, I can't think of any right now, mm -hmm. but I, I do imagine, you know, that concept, if you build it, they will come. And there is no easier place to get than actually the heart of San Francisco. You have every major artery um, bringing you there and. There's no reason why you wouldn't want to celebrate life's moments there. So um, I think with a few tweaks, we'll, we'll get it right, and it'll be great. I mean, I think Union Square could actually be an example of that <laughs> because yeah. I was reading some old Herb Cain columns, and he was writing about what a dump Union Square was. <laughs> and he was he was always at war with the pigeons. In fact, They're when when the, yeah, <laughs> and he would he set up this. Um, uh, these parasols that you could grab one and if you're walking across Union Square so you wouldn't get a deposit on your head. <laughs> and when birds came out, there was a famous picture of Herb Cain and Alfred Hitchcock hanging out with, I think there's like a bird on, uh, yeah. on Hitchcock's shoulder <laughs> or something. So it's been, it's come back before and it will come back again. Yeah, yeah. Let's, uh, let's bring back Goldie. Hey, Goldie. Hey, how's it going? Hey, good. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Um, Union Square is just such a special place to people. 
um, whether they went there as a child or not. Um, I've been there off and on before I was born. My mother was an elevator operator Mm. in some of the department stores, and she instilled a great love of Union Square in me from an early age. So to answer the questions, how have my habits changed? They've changed from looking forward to going there and always having Union Square in my back pocket Mm. as a place to go. Like, let's say it just was really hot (laughs) and you don't want to go, you don't Mm want to stay in your apartment or you don't want to go outside. You can go to Union Square and go to Macy's. It's eight floors of loveliness and it's air conditioned, Mm. you know, and everything you need there. And the people watching was always, you know, part of the thing. And going and looking in all the different window displays and, you know, all of that was part of my habit. And whether I actually needed shoes, which, you know, I would go there if I needed shoes or for the annual Macy's shoe sale and sometimes come out with 17 pairs of shoes (laughs) and have to have the... That's a lot of shoes, Goldie. Yeah. Well, they're on sale. I mean, it's a clearance. I saved like, I spent like 500 You actually saved money by spending that money. I understand. Yeah. I did. I remember I went home and I called my dad. I said, Daddy, you won't believe how much money I saved at Macy's today. (laughs) (laughs) And the store manager offered to keep them in his his office until I could come back with my car. With a truck. He said, no, mine's just my car. (laughs) Um, Goldie, up and he told me where to park. He gave me his phone number, and he said, "Park in front, and we'll bring your shoes out." And he did the next day. And I drove up to the front of the store, and him and a couple of employees came out with all my shoe boxes and put them in my car. Oh man, Goldie, yeah. I feel like you are the an amazing spokesperson for Absolutely. Union Square. Thank Honestly. you so much for those Honestly. those memories. And you know, then after shopping. You know, you would go and walk over to the Four Seasons for a martini, and you could do that safely. You could carry yes. your shopping bags and go have a lemongrass and ginger martini or a lychee martini at the top of the Four Seasons. And it was, you know, it was wonderful, and it was magical. And I would bring visitors there, wow. and we would go see the gingerbread house in the lobby of the hotel. And everything was never perfect. But it was not sad. And I feel like it is so sad to go down there. I have tried many times to see if it's better and go down and see, but it's still so sad. And it's not just the empty retail space, which is, of course, heartbreaking, because where are you going to shop? You can't even get a green juice at Walgreens anymore. But it's just sad. Yeah, Goldie. Well, let's um, let's tackle like the transformation of Union Square. I was, I was really enjoying just the overall vibe of uh, of Union Square of a particular moment that you were describing, and I think what I want to ask you, Marissa, about this is, can Union Square go back to that, which was a particular moment in time, a particular kind of structure of retail, a particular economic structure of the United States, or does it need to be? A different thing. I think it can be a little bit of both. Um, you know, there was a time that she describes, I bet the Emporium was there. You know, I bet I Magnin was there. Um, things change. Things shift. People mm-hmm. have different in- interests and, and desires. 
today, actually, we're blooming, um, which is a new initiative that, that we brought to Union Square. You know, the holidays were synonymous with the holidays. And mm. now we'd like spring and summer to be exactly what Goldie is describing. You know, you go out and it's warm. It feels good. The plaza always seems to be a little warmer than basically everywhere else in San Francisco <laughs> because of that marble from Italy. <laughs> Whatever. It just holds the heat. Um, so it's right now it's, it's bursting with flor- florals. We partnered with the um, flower mart and they came out and you, you can see florals on on bus stops and um, canopies and hotels go to the saint francis you can have a bloomed cocktail as goldie describes we have a passport on our website that can take you to 32 bloomed cocktails in the district mm. there's a lot happening there's some underground bars popping up here and there there's a, there's a vibe mm. um, and certainly it is a little different but it's also really unique and wonderful um, and an opportunity for basically everyone to find something that makes them happy. So I actually encourage everyone to come down to Union Square, maybe this weekend, maybe Memorial Day. Um, in September, we're going to start concerts in the park again. Um, so lots lots of music, lots of opportunity to enjoy. It's a great space. It's actually quite beautiful. Um, we've We've taken a hard hit lately just in the news, but in fact... People are quite surprised when they come in. Yeah, you know, there are a lot of vacancies. Can't help that. You know, the pandemic did not treat us kindly, mm-hmm. um, and neither did some of the social justice unrest that took place in, in the area and just some of the damage that that caused. Um, but we're coming out of it, and we're healing, just like the rest of the country. Well, my uh, son graduates from high school on Saturday, and we're going to go to John's Grill. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> Um, and we'll stop by and look at the flowers. Thank you. Yeah. I'll get you a passport. <laughs> uh, Richard in San Francisco, welcome to the show. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, since I called, actually, you've touched on a few things that I wanted to ask about. But yeah. uh, beyond the pigeon parasols and the, the potential for occasional concerts uh, and the flowers, I am curious how y'all would like to see the park itself, the the square, evolve to draw mm-hmm. people back and to make Union Square a welcoming, exciting place again. Awesome. Thank you for asking that. Again, I, I do want to thank our supervisor, Aaron Peskin, has been working very closely with the Alliance to identify some funds to help us actually turn our stage into a world-class music venue. Um, it'd be really great to be able to plug in and just have the vibe that we just know San Francisco is all about. Um, so that's certainly one thing. Uh, getting a hand on some of these skateboarders that seem to think <laughs> Union Square Plaza is the place to be. Mm-hmm. Um, apparently, we are featured on some video game somewhere, and so everybody has to, you know, check that off their list. Uh, so that's been certainly a challenge. You just need like a Supreme flagship store. It, just that's right like what I think we might actually yeah. already have. <laughs> so it doesn't help. Um, but yeah, you know, just we'd like to see something for everyone in Union Square. We'd like to see the opportunity. Um, for, you know, small business to have a, a chance at Union Square. We want to see more fast fashion come back. We certainly want to see um, different opportunities around luxury. The luxury market has continued to thrive in Union Square. I mean, there was a lot of talk about uh, Williams-Sonoma Williams leaving their flagship location, but few people talked about the fact that Chanel actually purchased the building and is planning three stories of luxury. And that's mm-hmm. kind of back to the zoning question, which is we want to give people the option and the flexibility to bring what it is that they want to bring. You know, the listener writes, uh, again, around uh, solutions here, Union Square has always been a special seasonal destination for me since I was a little girl. As people look towards the future use and development of Union Square, has there been any discussion and inclusion of the arts and artists? 
What if a museum is installed? What if there were rotating exhibits both inside and out? What if there were evening light shows with projected images? Those possibilities could increase the experiential aspect of this beautiful destination. Absolutely. Yes. Um, we would love to see a museum, many museums. We do have a museum district just across the way on Market, Yerba Buena. We'd love to connect that to mm -hmm. Union Square. We have galleries, lots of art galleries. They are still present, somehow managing to survive um, these challenging times, and um, some continue to actually thrive. So we want to see more of that. Don't forget Gallery Row. It's there. Come down and, and see your old art galleries. Uh, music, certainly. There are, there are a number of things that we think make for a complete neighborhood. Yeah. You know, JK, I wanted to come back to you um, just on, you know, when we talk about a complete neighborhood, it could be that there's more people there. You talked about how difficult some of those conversions have been historically. But what are the, can you talk a little bit more about Union Square conversion to housing and if that really is a real possibility? Um. Yeah, I think with the right incentives and with the right, I mean, it, it all comes down to construction costs and 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 what it costs to build. And right now, um, with the the current fees and affordable housing requirements, it's it's more expensive to convert a building from office or residential than to tear it down and build a new one. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, that eventually hopefully materials will go down and construction costs will will settle a little bit and then if the city can figure out a way to defer postpone lower fees and 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 maybe even provide incentives in terms of a you know quick entitlements approvals mm -hmm. um, and not make people you know drag through two years of, of hearings and and um, appeals and lawsuits and the typical kind of San Francisco thing that, that I think there's a real there is a possibility um, of and it's not going to be thousands of units but even a even you know four or five buildings would make a big difference in terms of people on the streets and activity and retail and mm -hmm. coffee shops and you know it would be great I think I mean, one thing that we have missed is, you know, places like Lefty O'Doul's, mm. which, which closed. And that was really like a industry, you know, bar. That was where a lot of the waiters and hotel workers and bartenders went, um, you know, after the shift or before their shift. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, you know, I'm not sure that they, we have that exactly now. No. That hasn't really been replaced. Um and so, yeah, I mean, I'm hoping that I remember when I moved here right after the dot com crash there, I saw a cab that said, um, I think the Washington Bar and Grill, the wash bag had just reopened after getting forced out during the dot com boom. And I saw they, they had advertising like everything old is new again. Um, huh. I feel like, you know, there might be a chance right now to kind of bring back some of that old, you know, San Francisco flavor. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. We've been talking about the future of retail and other things in Union Square and across the country. We've been joined by J.K. Deneen, Bay Area real estate reporter with the San Francisco Chronicle. Thanks so much for joining us, J.K. Thanks for having me. We've also been joined by Marissa Rodriguez, CEO of the Union Square Alliance. Thank you so much for joining us, Marissa. Thank you. Come down to Union Square, everyone. <laughs> Earlier, we were joined by Amanda Moll, staff writer at the Atlantic. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Scott Schaefer.
funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.